This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. This afternoon, as I was thinking about class tonight, I began to ponder uh, the question of when this whole idea of the importance of the organic conception of God's dealings with men really became a, an important part of my own thinking. It, it's very, very uh, strange, I think, that although I took Reformed dogmatics with Reverend Herman Huxema for six years, three years while I was going to college, and three years while I attended seminary, I can't recall that we ever really discussed this subject. Not as such. I can't recall once when he, in any period, took the time to explain to us what the term organic meant, why it was an important part of Reformed dogmatics, and why we ought to know what it meant and why we ought to study the concept as it was developed in Scripture. I find that strange that I can't remember anything like this because Reverend Huxma's writings were filled with the term and he used the term already in 1923 when he wrote his important book of Sin and Grace in Dutch von Sonde und Genade which, by the way, should be out from the Reform Free Publishing before the end of the year, I hope, in translation. Looking back on his writings, I remember very well that we ran across the term time and time again. It was in his early writings, it was in Standard Bear articles, it was in books that he wrote, it could be found in his Reform dogmatics, but for some reason or other, it never sank in. It never caught a hold. I never realized the importance of the word, never understood what it meant even, and why it was so important in Reformed theology. Nor did we ever talk about it amongst each other as students in our bull sessions, nor did we talk about it as ministers when I entered the ministry. And I was quite at a loss in the early years of my ministry to know what to do with the term. Occasionally in my reading, I would run across it and I would say, think to myself, there's that term again. But it never really meant all that much to me. I find that strange. It seems, it, it may be my fault, of course, that I wasn't listening when I should have been listening and that when Reverend Huxma was explaining this whole concept, for some reason or other, it was going over my head. But I don't think so. I don't think that could happen for six years running. It just seems to me, looking back, that for some reason or other, Reverend Huxma, as well as Reverend Dopoff, simply assumed that we knew what all this meant, and that we assumed it because it was a an important concept in the whole of Reformed theology going all the way back to the Synod of Dort. And that anyone who had any, any, any roots in Reformed theology ought to know without giving it second thought what this term was. 
And so it seems looking back to, as if Reverend Hooksma just simply assumed the term in all of his teaching and that in the course of his teaching, the ideas were an integral part of his teaching without ever coming around to defining specifically what he was talking about. I remember vividly the first time the importance of this term really hit me. And that happened to be in a Mr. and Mrs. Society, which I was leading here in Hope Church after I became professor in the seminary. And in the course of, I think it was an after-recess discussion, I was suddenly required to make a defense of the doctrine of infant baptism of all things. And it became such an important issue in the after-recess program in the Mr. and Mrs. Society that we spent several weeks on it. Maybe some of you who are here remember that. And it was in the course of getting ready for that that it occurred to me that there is no defense for the doctrine of infant baptism that is solid and biblical and persuasive other than the defense of the organic dealings of God with his people and with his church. And so it required of me that I take a new look at that whole idea and come to grips with it. Then, of course, once having been impressed with the importance of it, then many of the things that I was taught fell into place, and many of the things which I read suddenly took on new meaning, and it gave me a perspective in Reformed theology that I had really lacked up to that point. And not only for just theology, but for my preaching as well. It gave a new perspective to my preaching. I consider the term to be a, an extraordinarily important one and the concept that goes with it to be extraordinarily important too. So important, in fact, that I don't think that a man can genuinely be reformed unless he understands what this concept means. It is, in my judgment, important in the first place in our whole apologetic over against Arminianism and Pelagianism. We have many, many quarrels with Arminians. We quarrel with Arminians over the doctrine of the free will of man. We quarrel with Arminians over the doctrine of the extent of the atonement of Christ. But there's one quarrel which we have with the Arminians, which to me is the perhaps even more important than any of these others, and that is this, that Reformed theology deals with the, uh, the organic concept, while Arminianism has absolutely no place in its thinking for that. Arminianism, Pelagianism, is... Always, under all circumstances, and in every case, individualistic. It's always I and God. It's always my own personal relationship with God. It's always just God and his relationship to me. And the more that Reformed theology makes its impression upon us, the more we ought to see that this is exactly not the way God works. That doesn't mean, of course, that my own personal relationship to God is not of importance. But it isn't the important thing by any means, and it isn't that which gives one a hold of, of what is genuinely the heart of Reformed theology. In fact, if you get a hold of this concept once and understand what it means, and if it becomes a part of your thinking, 
as it ought to. You're never going to have any problem with Arminianism. You can't. It's a, it's a sure defense against all forms of Arminianism, no matter where they appear and in what cloak they dress themselves. In addition to that, it's also true, it seems to me, that this concept of God's organic dealings with men is a concept that stands related to many, many other doctrines which are reformed, which are biblical, which are confessional, which we hold dear as living in the reformed tradition. In fact, it's a way of looking at every other doctrine from a uniquely biblical point of view. I remember, oh, maybe 10, 12 years ago, I got into a correspondence with a man in England, a young man in England who was a dyed-in-the-wool Baptist, Arminian, pre-mill, the whole gamut. And we got to discussing the doctrine of baptism, and by that time I had learned that it wasn't possible to defend the doctrine of infant baptism apart from the idea of the organic conception of God's dealings with men. But I didn't dare to broach it right away because it's a concept which, if you start talking about it, people look at you in a startled fashion and eyebrows are raised and, and they take the attitude, what in the world is that man talking about? They simply don't know. But there came a course in the, there came a time in the course of our discussion where I was getting nowhere and I thought the time has come to broach this idea of the organic conception of things, the organic conception of God's dealings with men. So I did in a letter. He didn't have the faintest notion of what I was talking about. He was a very intelligent man, very well read man, but he had no idea what I was talking about took an exchange of letters over the course of more than one year for me just to give him some idea of what this was all about. The concepts were so strange and so foreign and concepts with, to which he had never given a moment's thought that he, he simply didn't know. It was as if I was talking a different language. And I recall well that finally, in sheer desperation, I said to him, look, if you can't get these things straight, why don't you do this? Why don't you sit down in your devotions, in your own private devotions, and read the prophecy of Isaiah? And in reading the prophecy of Isaiah, ask yourself this question. Why is it that in certain passages, God at one moment will bring the full weight of his fury and wrath against Israel for all their sins, and in the very next moment, perhaps even in the next verse in the prophecy, God will speak of blessings and grace and love for his people, all the while speaking to the same nation. Tell me why he does that. Read the prophecy of Isaiah. And I gave him a few instances to get him started and to pay special attention. How can God switch from curses to blessings in speaking to the same people within a moment's time? Tell me that. Well, it didn't take long for him to say, you 
asked me a question that I can't answer about the book of Isaiah. So I said to him, well, why don't you try to look at it once from what I've been saying is the organic way in which God deals with men. And that made the light dawn. And it made it dawn in him in such a way that he even wrote me and said, I don't want to talk about infant baptism anymore because I'm afraid if I talk about it, I'm going to be persuaded of your position. And I didn't hear from him again on that subject for a long time. Then I met him in England, and he has since become a very dear friend. And he took me aside and he whispered in my ear, I believe in infant baptism, he said to me. <laughs> but what I'm, the point I'm trying to make is this. It all began with his getting a hold of this conception of God's organic dealings with men. That's the doctrine of infant baptism, the doctrine of the covenant. It stands related to many, many more doctrines. It stands related to perhaps every doctrine of the Scripture, or at least gives a unifying principle to every doctrine of the Word of God. So we're dealing with something which, in my judgment, is extremely important. At the same time, it's extremely difficult also to understand. Was for me, it is for anyone who wishes to consider this matter. I'm not at all sure that the doctrine itself is so difficult. I don't really think it is. I think the difficulty lies in the fact that it's an idea that is so foreign to our ordinary common way of thinking, that it's hard for us to assimilate exactly what it means. So we're going to make an effort to do that in the next few weeks. What I'm going to do is talk for 15 minutes or so and complete one aspect of this subject, and then I'm going to open the floor to questions before we go on. I hope you will feel free to ask questions. Um, and maybe we can even generate a little discussion, I don't know. But I think questions are always extraordinarily helpful. Questions help to imprint the truths that we need to learn upon our minds. Questions uh, have a way of clarifying difficult things. So please feel free to ask questions. Don't say to yourself, oh, oh uh, I don't dare to ask that question, it's such a dumb question. There are no dumb questions. Every question is a good one, and it's a good one because it means you'd like to have some further discussion or information on a particular point. That makes it a good one. Now, first of all, we have to try to come to some understanding of what the term organic means. As you noticed in your outline, I've offered a definition. I'm not sure that this is... Uh, the only possible definition, I'm not sure that this is the absolutely best one that can be made, but it's the best I can come up with and it's going to have to serve our purposes for these classes. The definition I propose is this. An organism, looking at it now from the viewpoint of an organism, first of all, an organism is a living and unified creation of God which has a diversity of individual parts, but one living principle of unity. 
think probably that's a good definition to memorize, at least that you have in your mind the elements of it. Uh, seems to me it will serve our purposes at least. I want to say a few things about the uh, definition. First of all, I think there are three elements in the definition to which I particularly want to call your attention. And that is that an organism is, first of all, a unity. A unity. It's a composite of individual parts, but it is a unity. It's one entity, one thing. Tree is an organism. One tree is an organism. One dandelion is an organism. One mosquito is an organism. One alligator is an organism. One man is an organism. In the second place, an organism is composed of a diversity of parts, sometimes a very unusual and strange combination of different parts. Who would expect, for example, on an elephant, a nose that's six feet long, that's a part of the organism of an elephant. No other animal has that kind of a nose, but it's a part of an elephant. And so he has big ears and a short tail and leather skin and so on and so forth. A variety of parts. So does a tree. A tree has roots. A tree has a trunk. A tree has layers in the trunk. A tree has branches. A tree has leaves and so on and so forth. But all the different parts fit together in such a way that they constitute a unity. In the third place, and that's probably the most important of all, an organism is something living. That's perhaps what makes the whole idea of organism so hard to, to define and so hard to understand because we are not really very sure about what life is. In fact, we don't know what life is. Life is a unique creation of God that he gave to his creatures, to some of his creatures. But I have never in all my life heard anyone define life. Tell us what it is. Why is it that some creatures live and others do not? That, for example, a rose bush lives, but a star does not. So an organism has to be something living. It's therefore a unity of diverse parts, which principle of unity is the peculiar kind of life it has. Now, in God's creation, there are different kinds of life, of course. The lowest forms of life are to be found in the one-celled creatures, such as, for example, the amoeba. Notch above that form of life is the life of the plant world. The plant world has its own unique kind of life. It's an insensible life. The plant cannot have senses of any kind. It doesn't have eyes. It doesn't have ears. It doesn't have touch. It doesn't have reflexes. It can't respond in any respect to any kind of stimuli so that its response becomes conscious. It doesn't have any consciousness. You can step on a dandelion. It isn't going to hurt. Above the plant, life is the level of 
animal life, in which kind of life there are also vast differences. There is a vast difference between the life of a frog and the life of a dog. In a certain sense of the word, animals have souls. The Bible says so. In fact, in Genesis 1 already, the creation of animals and amphibians, they are called in Scripture living souls. So they have a kind of a soul life which a plant does not have, which is a higher kind of a life. The highest kind of life is the life of man, of course. But each is an organism in its own right. Now that's only true of individual instances in God's world. What we're talking about in this lesson and in lessons to come is the use of organisms in a much broader and wider sense of the word than just an individual living creature. We're talking about the fact in the first place that the human race constitutes an organism within God's creation. And we're talking about the fact in the second place that in the broadest sense of the word, the whole creation of God is an organism. And that last point is important to remember. I hope you will kind of make a special point of that and you will put some exclamation marks behind it and underscore it and perhaps some asterisks in front of it. Because that, that idea is going to be an idea which we're going to have to be talking about again and again and again. The whole of God's creation is one organism, was one, remains one, too. Now, within an organism, whether you're talking about the organism of the human race or the organism of the whole of this earthly creation, and by the way, although the Bible doesn't tell us very much about heaven, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that in some sense of the word, the heavenly creation is also an organism. It's a different kind than here on earth, and we can't be sure of what kind it is. And especially we can't be sure of how the angels in heaven stand related to the heavenly creation. But heaven is a place. Heaven is a creation of God. Heaven is a place where history takes place, where events unfold, where the counsel of God is realized. And in some sense of the word, therefore, the heavenly creation is also an organism. But though it may be such an organism, from the time of creation, at the moment when God created the worlds, he created them as two separate and distinct organisms that have absolutely no relationship to each other whatsoever as far as the original creation is concerned. And that, too, is, is a point which, for our purposes, and for our purposes not only in this class, but also in classes to come, is something we have to remember. I'm just going to mention it now. We're going to have to talk about this a little bit later. But when God created the heavens and the earth, and in my opinion, that statement in Genesis 1, verse 1, refers to heaven. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. He created them as two distinct and separate creations. So totally distinct and separate that there is a barrier in between them, which it is impossible to cross. 
That is, there is no possibility of any communication between this part of God's creation and this part of God's creation. There is no possibility, I'm talking now as far as the original creation is concerned, of any inhabitant of this creation ever coming into this creation. You say, yeah, but angels came. Yeah, I know that. Angels came. But angels came only after the promise. Don't forget that. Only after the fall and after the promise. As far as the original creation was concerned, there was no possibility for angels ever to come to the earth. And there was no possibility for any earthly creature ever to get to heaven. That's one of the big errors of the covenant of works. You all know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 when he's talking about the resurrection of the body. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Cannot. Not will not. Cannot. It's impossible. Flesh and blood, which belongs to this earthly creation, can't go there. It is, according to the creation itself and the nature of it, an impossibility. That barrier is impenetrable between this creation and this creation. So there is a stream of history here, and there is a stream of history here, both according to the counsel of God, but ne'er the twain shall meet. They flow in two different riverbeds. They're two different streams of history. They remain distinct, except, except, through the work of the cross of Christ. And we'll come to that later on. So there's something of an organism there too, but there is here too in this creation, in this earthly creation. You must understand, of course, that as far as the original organism of the creation is concerned, it was a place that is absolutely foreign to us and to anything we know. Almost all the unity of that original creation has been destroyed because of the entrance of sin. Sin wrecked the organism of the creation. Sin was to the organism of the creation what cancer is to the human body. If I may use that metaphor, we can't see much of it anymore today. We can hardly tell what that original organism of the creation was because sin came, and that spoiled it all. Nevertheless, we can see a few things, and scientists, interestingly enough, are just beginning to find out that that's the case, too. I always have to chuckle a little bit. Scientists, with all their worldly wisdom, all of a sudden come up with a mammoth discovery, which the Christians knew all the time. And so it is with environmental issues, as you know. You do something to one part of the creation, you may affect that part of the creation, but there's going to be a rippling effect of what you do to that part of the creation that will go on and on to all different parts of the creation in unexpected places and in unexpected ways simply because the creation is one. That's why. So we ought not to be surprised, as we're not. We're not surprised about that. Christians knew that all the time. Nevertheless, creation is an organism. That means that not only is it one unity, one principle of life, and by the way, 
we ought to establish that immediately too, that life which was characteristic of the creation before the fall was the life of covenant fellowship with God right from the beginning. God is the source and the fountain of all life. And in creation, the first as well as now, it is true to live apart from God is death, but life is fellowship with him. He, the living creator and sustainer of all things, was the deepest principle of the life that tied the creation together. But in that organism, there's one more characteristic of it, which is so utterly and totally important, and that is this, that every part of the organism, and that's true of any organism, is dependent upon every other part. A leaf of a tree lives, but you take that leaf off the tree, and it dies. It can only live in unity with the organism of which it's a part. My heart is, in a way, an organism in its own right. But you can't take my heart out of my body and lay it on the table and expect that heart to continue to live. It can only live when it stands in relationship to my body. Same thing is true of my arm. As they're finding out with that little boy that whose arm was bitten off by a shark in Florida. You take the arm off a person and you lay it on the table and it doesn't live, can't live by itself, it's going to die. So although any part of an organism, whether you're talking now about the whole creation or whether you're talking about an individual organism within the creation, is so completely dependent upon every other part, so completely one with every other part, that its, it's very life depends upon its continued relationship with the whole. At the same time, and this is also very interesting and very beautiful, an organism is, when all the parts are in place, perfect. I mean, not morally perfect necessarily, although God created it that way too, but it's a perfect organism. If you take something away from it, you mutilate the organism, no matter if it's a little thing. If you add something to it that doesn't really belong to it, you mutilate it. If you add the horn of a unicorn to a man, you got a monstrosity. If you add the stinger of a mosquito to a horse, you have a monstrosity. The mosquito needs the stinger, but the horse doesn't. Each organism is perfect. Each organism is complete. And by the way, if I may demonstrate that a moment with the church, which is an organism too, when the full number of the elect are gathered in heaven, the church is perfect. I don't mean only morally perfect. It's a perfect organism. There's no room for one more elect. And if one is missing, the whole is spoiled. That's why the number of the elect is fixed. Not arbitrarily. So that God says... We'll save this one, and this one, and this one, and this one, and this one. That's enough. We're not going to save anymore. We've saved enough people. No! He chose an organism that when everyone is in his own place, the organism is complete, the organism is perfect, there's no room for one more, there's one less will destroy the organism. 
That's the way it was in the original creation too, by the way. It was complete. There wasn't any room for any other creatures. I mean any other different kinds of creatures. And we see something like that even in the world today. My wife and I were talking about it a couple of days ago, watching the birds in the feeders. What an impoverished world this would be if there were no birds. They belong. They belong. And this is a sin-cursed creation, and yet we can even see some of these things. So all of these things belong to the organism. Then there is the organism of the human race. The human race is an organism. The relationship between Adam and the human race is identical with the re, uh, uh, identical to the relationship of an acorn to an oak tree. The whole oak tree is in the acorn. The whole human race was in Adam. He is the root of the human race. He is the father of the human race. He is the acorn out of which the oak tree of the human race grows. In that sense of the word, Every individual that ever lived, including the millions and billions of babies that died before they saw the light of day, are part of the organism of the human race. So Adam is, as we say, the organic head of the human race. The organic head. Now, I have to introduce one more concept yet, and then we're going to have questions. Adam is the organic head of the human race because the whole human race come, came from him, but he is also the federal head of the human race. The federal head. And this concept is important too. They go together, they fit like a hand in a glove, but let's understand what this means. Let me just say a couple of things about it. That Adam is the organic head of the human race means simply the whole human race grew out of him. That Adam is the federal head of the whole human race means that he was the legal head, the responsible head. The human race was represented in him in its relationship to God. So that what Adam did in relation to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he did as the federal head of the human race. Now, let's understand that he could be the federal head of the human race only because he was the organic head. He could never represent the whole human race if he was not the father of the whole human race. I say that and emphasize that because pretty soon we're going to talk about Christ. And when we talk about Christ, then we have to remember that this relationship doesn't obtain. First this and then this. Christ is eternally appointed by God to be the federal head of his people. First. And only because he's the federal head does he also become the organic head. And so this is important for us to remember for later on. I'm going to stop for a moment. I, I don't know if I'm coming through. I don't know if you're understanding what I'm saying. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to ask any questions or anything that's bothering you or anything that's not clear. John, the question is, if there is a barrier between the heavenly creation and the earthly creation, 
How is it possible for Satan to approach Adam and Eve? Call your attention to a couple of things in that connection which serve to underscore this fact. The devil, of course, belongs to this creation, right? Not to this one. And it is exactly because he does not belong to this creation that he has no access to this creation either. No access to it. Except through a creature in this creation. Now that means two things. That means, first of all, that the devil had no way of approaching Adam and Eve except by making use of a creature from this creation, which he also did, the serpent. But it means in the second place that when, when Satan's plot in heaven failed to snatch the creation in heaven away from God and become king there himself, he decided to do this to the earthly creation. And he decided to put the entire universe under his control, rob God of it, make it his domain and his realm. But the only way he could do that is by gaining man to his side. He could never do that directly. He could never have done that without man's aid. He could not not have done that except to persuade Adam and Eve, and especially Adam, to cooperate with him in this endeavor to function as his representative in this earthly creation. That's the only way that Satan could have access to this world. Now that he has, and this is somewhat mysterious, but now that he has man on his side, the devil has access via the power of temptation to our thoughts, to the life of our soul, so that his temptations can be from within. You know, I suppose this is a little bit beside the point, but I've been thinking for a long time, probably a year, to preach on that text out of Galatians 5, where the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to each other, so that she cannot do the things that she would. I think that if we could have some sense of the struggle that goes on within us between the powers of darkness using our sinful flesh and the work of grace of the Spirit within our hearts, we would be dumbfounded. I think the struggle is a titanic one. I think the struggle is fierce and bitter and unrelenting, furious, putting us every moment in an extraordinarily precarious position so that we walk, as it were, on the edge of a precipice every moment of our lives, ready to fall off and plunge into hell if it were not for the Spirit. The struggle, the struggle for control of our thought, the struggle for control of our desires, the struggle for control of our speech, of our words, is mammoth. And I think if the the angels have any awareness of it at all, which I think they do, they tremble. They tremble. 
But that's because we are totally depraved by nature, that the devil has that kind of access to us. But he didn't to Adam and Eve. He had to come through the serpent. When a disease enters the body which eats at the vitals of a person, gradually the whole unity disintegrates. Even though it may be over a process of time, And even though there may be remnants of that unity present, but this organ is affected, and with this organ not functioning at 100%, another organ is affected, and the whole of the person, his stomach is affected, and so he can't eat, and he can't eat, and he gets hungry, and he tries to eat, and he vomits, and other organs are affected by a lack of food, and gradually, visibly, you can see the organism deteriorate and, as it were, fall to pieces. Old age does that, too. I see my father literally falling to pieces. He knows it, too. He knows it. Talks about it. Second Corinthians 5.1 The earthly house of this tabernacle is dissolved, you see, Paul says. It falls to pieces. But something of the unity remains for a while. So it is in the creation. I made some mention of the fact that in this organism of the creation, there are levels of life from the lowest forms of life to the highest form of life. The highest form of life being man, the principle of his life being a rational moral life. Now... That involves the question of Genesis 2-7, the creation of man. It is a mistake. Let me, let's just look at that a moment. And God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Now, I call your attention in the first place in that text to the fact that Man being called a living soul is not unique to man. If you go back to Genesis 1, although that's obscured in our King James Version, it is an expression that is found more than once. It's found, for example, uh, in verse 21, And God created great worlds and every living creature that moveth. That's living soul that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly. And the same expression is used there and a little further on, which is used in Genesis 2.7. Nefesh hayah is the, is the Hebrew, living soul. In the second place, in that passage, you must not conceive of the creation of man as being the formation out of the dust of the earth as the creation of the body and the breathing into his nostrils, the breath of life, the creation of the soul. It's not so. Otherwise, the animals could not be called living souls. The creation of man out of the dust of the ground was the creation of man, body and soul. His soul is also of the dust of the ground. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven, he doesn't mean just this body can't inherit the kingdom of heaven, but a man who is earthly, material, body and soul, cannot, cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. 
Nevertheless, although that's not specifically described in Genesis 2 verse 7, the breath of life which was breathed into a man with body and soul was the creation of what Scripture often calls spirit. Spirit. That spirit is the side of man that relates him inevitably and inseparably to God. He was that, even in the earthly creation. This earthly creation is God's, not man's. When God created man, he put man at the pinnacle of the creation. Man was, so to speak, the pinnacle of the whole organism, the most important part of the whole organism. The whole of the cosmos found the deepest principle of its unity in man. The whole creation was united in the heart of man, in the spirit of man, if you will, who was in God's world prophet, priest, and king, God's representative. It was because the breath of God was breathed into him that man possesses another dimension to his being, which enables him to know God. Apart from that, he never could. He couldn't even know God, as a dog can't know God. And so, although I don't want to go into the details of those concepts, I would call the spirit of man that side of man's soul life which places him in a relationship to God. Whether that relationship be good or bad, that makes no difference. It stands in a relationship to God. That's Genesis 2.7. So the whole creation is united in the heart of Adam. Adam is God's representative. Adam brings the whole creation to God. He rules over it in God's name as king. He consecrates it to God as priest by his own heart of love for God. And he speaks God's word in the creation as prophet that the whole creation may know the word of God. He can do that because he has the breath of life in him. John's question is, is the organic unity of the human race found in the brotherhood of all men? Yes, except you must not forget, of course, that the brotherhood of all men is a brotherhood that is rooted in Adam, but that Christ enters into the picture so that all men are brothers by virtue of a common descent, but are not raised to the higher brotherhood of the family of God. But otherwise, in the abstract, yes, the answer to your question is yes. Let me just say something, uh, something about that. There is a brotherhood of the entire human race because of its common origin in Adam. But don't forget the fall came. The fall came so that from a moral, spiritual point of view, as Jesus himself says of the Pharisees, the father of the human race is Satan. Ye are of your father the devil, whose works ye do. A new brotherhood has been created in Christ. And that brotherhood is the brotherhood of, of 1 Peter 2. The family of God, in which God is the father, Christ is the elder brother, and all the elect are brothers and sisters in Christ. That brotherhood is mentioned there. The organic development of sin.
There would be some, I suppose, who would strenuously object to that because they would insist on the fact that sin is man's responsibility. Sin is what man does. And sin cannot be a part of God's federal and organic dealings with man. Nevertheless, I insist on that topic, and I insist on that because one of the fundamental assumptions on which we're going to be basing all our discussion tonight is the truth of God's absolute sovereignty also over sin. I'm not going to spell that out in detail. I'm not going to debate the point or argue it. I'm not even going to defend it in any kind of uh, significant detail. I'm going to assume it. Assume that God is sovereign and that his sovereignty extends also over sin. And specifically that his sovereignty extends over the organic development of sin. Nevertheless, we're going to say some things about that and uh, point especially to some implications of that. In a way, tonight's class is the most difficult of all four. It's the most difficult for me, certainly. We're speaking of something that is the black background of God's work. We're speaking of that which is dark, that which is hopeless, that which is despairing, that which is chaotic, that which is distasteful and repulsive and abhorrent to God himself, sin, sin. And we're going to have to limit ourselves to a discussion of that too. I don't like to do that. I never, whether I'm preaching or teaching, like to limit a discussion merely to sin. It's too negative. It's too dark. It's too gloomy. Nevertheless, tonight, that's where all our emphasis is going to lie. I do hope, of course, that at the end we will have an opportunity to show how sin is also under God's sovereign control important for all God's works. Before we proceed, however, with tonight's discussion, we have to back up just a little bit to a few things which we did not have time to deal with last time. It's all right that we have to back up a bit. Uh, what we did not have time for last time is nevertheless a part of what we have to discuss tonight. I want to start with the fall of man, the fall of our first parents in paradise, something I had hoped we would have time for last week, but we did not. I don't want to say a whole lot about the fall, about the history of the fall or the nature of the fall. I only want to say some things about the fall in connection with the subject of God's federal and organic dealings with man. And then in the first place, I have to remind you that last time we emphasized the fact that when Adam was created by God, Adam was created as the federal and organic head of the human race. He stood in that position in paradise while he was in his state of rectitude. But he fell also as the federal and organic head of the human race. 
I think probably the idea of Adam as the federal head of the human race is the most difficult to uh, appropriate, to understand, even to believe. The simple fact of the matter is that almost no one in the world today holds to that doctrine anymore. Not even in the Reformed camp. And if there can be found those here and there who still perhaps would agree with the doctrine, nevertheless, they never preach it, they never teach it, they never mention it, they never say anything about it. It is a doctrine that emphatically belongs to covenant theology. If you would, for example, examine the writings of Luther and Calvin and Knox and Swingley and the other reformers, you would find a lot of treatment of the organic headship of Adam in his relationship to the human race, but you wouldn't find much on Adam's federal headship of the human race. That was a doctrine that was developed in post-Reformation times by third and fourth generation reformers. Interestingly enough, because it was of somewhat later development, it isn't found explicitly in our creeds, not any one of the three. There are hints of it, and I want to point you to a hint or two presently, but nevertheless, it was not a doctrine that was developed. Even as late as the Synod of Dort in 1618-19, there was no specific doctrine of the federal headship of Christ. There were some on the Synod who had begun to consider that doctrine and who were teaching it to a certain extent, notably Gomaris. Gomaris, the bitter, implacable, fiery enemy of all Arminianism. He was what you could call a federalist and held to federal theology. Nevertheless, the concept itself was developed especially in connection with the doctrine of the covenant. I don't want to talk about that aspect of it tonight. We'll save that for a future class. But I do want you to bear that in mind. So, remembering that, let's go back just a moment to the fall of Adam. Now, you recall that when we were talking about Adam's relation to the human race, he talked about the fact that that was twofold, federal and organic. This meant that Adam represented the human race before God as far as its legal status was concerned. And this term means that Adam was the father of the human race so that the entire human race came forth from our first parents, Adam and Eve. This is therefore a legal concept and this concept is what we can call an organic concept. Now, when Adam fell, he fell in these two capacities. It had consequences, therefore, for the human race with regard to both Adam's federal headship and his organic headship. To be very brief about this, and I hope I'm being sufficiently uh, detailed for you to understand it, but to be very brief about it, it's simply, this simply means this, that when Adam fell, 
because of his transgression, he became guilty himself, but the entire human race became guilty in him. That's what that concept means. Now, I say that's not maintained in the Reformed camp even today. You take, for example, G.K. Burkauer, a Reformed theologian out of the Netherlands, from the Gerichmere Kerken, who wrote a whole dogmatics, wrote one volume, the title of which was Sin. That is in its English translation, Sin. He spends many, many pages in this book on sin, denying or refuting the idea that Adam sinned as the federal head of the human race. He denies it. He denies it flat out. And he goes into great detail in order to prove, in quotes, that that's impossible, that the human race cannot be guilty in Adam. He was a, re a Reformed theologian of considerable influence in the Netherlands as well as in this country. We have to maintain that. We have to maintain that the guilt of Adam's sin is imputed to the entire human race. That is, the entire human race that came forth from Adam and Eve regardless of age, regardless of length of stay on the earth, whether that be the length of stay of an aborted fetus or the length of an aged man, every individual is guilty for the sin of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, guilty before God. So guilty before God that every solitary individual is Worthy of hell for Adam's sin alone. If he would never commit another sin, he would still go to hell because of the guilt that is his of eating of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. I want to call your attention to that. I consider that a sufficiently important doctrine that we ought to have Clear scriptural proof for that. That scriptural proof is found in the first place and primarily in the classical text, Romans 5, verses 12 through 14. And I'd like to have you take a look at that with me briefly. Romans 5, 12 through 14. Wherefore, as by one man, Sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so, death passed upon all men. That's the apostle's assertion. Notice that. By one man, sin entered the world. That is, by Adam and his sin of eating of the forbidden tree, sin entered the world. That's how sin came into God's creation. Sin entered the world not only, but also death. Death came along with that one sin. And so death passed upon all men. Now death here refers, of course, to death in all of its implications. And we'll come to that in just a few moments. 
but it, it refers to total depravity, it refers to physical death, and it refers to the eternal death of hell, where there is complete separation from God. Death came upon all men. Why? Why is it? How can that be? That death came upon all men. You would expect, and that's what the Arminian would say, and even most in the Reformed camp, well, death comes upon all men because they sin. No, no, says Paul. That isn't the explanation for this. Sin came into the world through one man, and death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now, the translation here is not quite as clear as one would like to have it. Really, those words, for that, in the beginning of the last clause, should be translated, by whom? By whom? And it's, of course, that which is the big bone of contention in a man such as G.K. Burkauer, for example, who denies uh, original guilt. So, what is the Paul saying then? Sin came into the world through one man, and death passed upon all men as a result of sin because of the fact that by that one man all sin. That's his argument. By Adam, all sinned. How did they sin? They sinned because they were responsible for Adam's sin. That's how they sinned. Not they became sinners, not they in their own turn were guilty of their own sins. That's true too. But that isn't the point here. Death passed upon all men. Death passes upon infants. Death passes upon everyone that is born of Adam. Why? Because they sinned in Adam. Because the sin of Adam is their sin. That is the teaching of Paul. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. That last part is the second proof for my contention that all men are guilty in Adam. He was the figure of him who was to come. Now, although I want to say more about that at a later time, I call your attention to the fact now that if you deny the federal headship of Adam so that you deny the imputation of Adam's sin to the entire human race, that clause in verse 14 of Romans 5, as the rest of the chapter makes clear, compels you to deny the federal headship of Christ. You cannot maintain the one without the other. Just as in Adam all died, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, so in Christ shall all be made alive. That's a dreadful thing 
I am guilty before God for what Adam did. So guilty that it has to become part of my confession of sin. I ask you, how often do you confess your sin to God of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Have you ever done it? Have you ever done that? Well, you better, you go to hell for it, unless you confess and repent of it. That's how important that is. We are guilty for Adam's sin. Before God, God is angry. God is furious for what we did in Adam. You say, oh, I wasn't there. How can he hold me accountable for that? Never mind. Makes no difference at all. That's God's federal dealings with men. And if you argue about that, you argue against God. If you say that's unjust, then you say God is unjust. But don't forget, then you say too, if it can't happen in Adam, then the reverse can't happen in Christ. And then you have denied salvation. I say there are hints of that in our confessions. I want to call your attention just to one instance, and that is Lord's Day 4. I consider Lord's Day 4 in the Heidelberg Catechism to be one of the most important Lord's Days in the whole Heidelberg Catechism as far as the truth of the Reformed faith is concerned. I hear a lot of talk about the fact that the Heidelberg Catechism has universal appeal. And by universal appeal is meant that people of all denominations and people of all beliefs and people of all ecclesiastical affiliations find a kind of a unity in the Heidelberg Catechism. Well, my answer to that is, if that's so, they don't understand the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 4, right away already, is a huge boulder that blocks the way of most people who go into the meaning of the Heidelberg Catechism. Those who are Reformed, the few that want to remain a Reformed, can go on into what the Heidelberg Catechism teaches. But Lord's Day 4 is a barrier that keeps all those who want no part of God's sovereignty and of this truth of Adam's federal headship to enter with integrity into the teachings of the Heidelberg Catechism. Notice, doth not God then do injustice to man by requiring from him and his law that which he cannot perform? Isn't it wrong of God to demand of you and me that which we cannot perform? Don't we have a legitimate excuse when God says, love me with all your heart to say, I was conceived and born in sin, I can't. You have no right to demand of me that which I cannot perform. What does the catechism answer? And here, although the teaching is not explicit, it's implied. Not at all. God is not in unjust in doing that. Why not? God made man capable of performing it. But man, by the instigation of the devil, you see there's a clear reference to paradise, and his own willful disobedience deprived himself and all his posterity of those gifts 
What does that mean? That means this. God does not do injustice to me by demanding of me that which I cannot perform because he made me capable of performing it. You say, I was conceived and born in sin. Yes, we're talking about Adam. He made me capable of performing it in Adam. Yeah, but it was Adam that sinned. You sinned in Adam. You were made perfect in Adam. You sinned in Adam. It's your fault that you cannot keep the law of God. That's Lord's Day 4. That's a powerful, powerful question and answer. And is, I say, the rock that smashes to pieces every form of Arminianism and Pelagianism simply because of the fact that it teaches the federal headship of Adam, even though it's not explicit. Now, in addition to that, Adam was also the organic head of the human race. And that Adam was the organic head of the human race means simply this. I mean, as far now as the fall is concerned, that when Adam sinned by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God fulfilled that punishment upon Adam, which he had threatened to do by killing Adam. He killed Adam. And he killed Adam, not by making Adam drop dead at the foot of the tree, but he killed Adam by making Adam totally depraved. That's death, total depravity. The proof of that is, of course, in Ephesians 2, verse 1. But you, who were dead in trespasses and sins, God hath quickened. Dead. That's death, total depravity. God killed Adam the moment he ate of the tree. I think, I, I try sometimes in my mind to picture the almost indescribable change that must have come over Adam and Eve at the moment they sinned against God when they were changed suddenly from life to death, from holiness to corruption, from perfection to depravity. What an awful experience that must have been for them. It took place immediately. That death is passed on to the entire human race. And it is passed on to the human race because Adam is the organic head of the whole human race. The article in our Confessions which describes that most clearly is found in the Confession of Faith, a very uh, nice article, Article 15. And by the way, if you look this up, you will find here, too, a certain hint of that federal idea, but it's just a hint. Let's close with prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come unto Thee with thanksgiving for this opportunity to come together as fellow saints to discuss the truth of the Scriptures. For Thy truth is a marvelous truth. And we know so little, O Lord. We study and study and think and think and pray and pray and search the Scriptures. But we know so little. 
And that is all because of the fact that thou art so great that there are infinite riches of truth, infinite and profound truth, far beyond the reach of mere man. And we are but creatures of the dust. And beside being so small and insignificant, we can hardly think straight because we are so sinful. And so we need thy help as we stumble along a little bit and try to learn a little bit, try to understand thy ways. We need thy help, the guidance of thy spirit and thy revelation and the revelatory power of thy spirit and word within our hearts. And when we grasp a little bit, as thou and thy mercy dost enable us to do, we are overwhelmed with the greatness of the glory of thy truth as it is in Jesus Christ. Overwhelmed by the wonder of it and the glory of it and overwhelmed especially by the fact that thou dost make this truth known to us and that in knowing it, we have salvation. That is the greatest wonder of all. We thank thee for tonight. We ask thy blessing upon us in the nights that lie ahead. May we be diligent in our searching of the scriptures. May we be persuaded to pursue our study of thy word with greater zeal. May we know that the knowledge of thee in Jesus Christ is eternal life. Forgive all of our sins and hear us for thy namesake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations, Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org, and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hope rwc at gmail dot com. Thank you.